Hello everybody and welcome back to Draco's Den. This episode this week I'm going to do a bit of a character analysis just to have a little bit of fun because for me it's always fun to talk about my books and my characters and the motivations and everything behind them. So this week I wanted to start off with uh, two characters that are the very first characters that I introduced in my published work in the Dragon Hunter series, we're going to start off with Andreas and Kazarian. I definitely wanted to start with them because, like I said, they were the first. They were the first uh, names that you come across in the very first book that I actually published. Now, mind you, this is not including all the stuff that I wrote beforehand and never actually published and never intend to publish. This is just going off my published work, things that, you know, people that listen to me might know or can find and learn more about. So, let's uh, go a little bit into how I came up with these two characters. And Andreas and Kazarian are a rarity for me as far as characters that are main characters in my books or at least in the books that come afterwards, because there was no direct inspiration that I can give for these two characters. What I mean by this, any other characters that I write, they have, for the most part, a lot of them have a real life inspiration as far as the main protagonists go. Now, my villains are always generally completely fictional, but for the protagonists, normally they're based off someone somewhere that I've seen someone that I know some of them are based off me Andreas and Kazarian are totally different in that these are characters that just popped into my head but in order to really tell their story accurately I have to be honest the prologue that everyone reads first in that book was not written originally when I was writing the book I was more than halfway done when I wrote the prologue now if you haven't read the lost dragon in the prologue it takes place in the very distant past when Andreas as far as he knew was completely mortal Kazarian was born mortal he, he did not have any divine blood flowing within him at all they were Spartan soldiers and in order for that to work the way that I wanted it to work, I needed it to take place further back. Andreas had to be old. He had to be very old. Uh, because I knew when I created him that he was a black dragon. And I knew he would be the strongest of all of them. He had to be. This is just how he formed in my head. He was calm, skilled, collected, powerful. That had to be him. When I started the story, I actually started where it picks up on chapter one after the prologue. I knew who Andreas was. I knew how he looked. So to kind of give you in mind, obviously he's Greek because he's Spartan. A little different because I gave him blonde hair, but I gave him blonde hair because I knew he was connected to Zeus. I knew who his father was. I had already formed Jarrell and I'd formed Zorel, and I knew Jarrell would be his father. 
but I knew I wanted him connected to Zeus. In case you're not familiar, technically Andreas is Zeus's grandson. His mother is a daughter of Zeus. And then his father, Jarrell, is the king of the dragon gods, the black dragon god. And a lot of other labels that I haven't even fully given him in the series yet. But Jarrell is a primordial god. He is a embodiment of, of fire, specifically black fire, the hottest fire in my world. Um, and as such, he kind of turns out some of the more powerful children. I knew Andreas had to be that first child, or at least be regarded as the first child. He's not actually the first. To give a little bit of background, I modified Greek mythology in this story. So I added primordial gods that don't exist in mythology. Jarel and Zarel are two embodiments of fire that do not exist in mythology. They're entirely my own creations. But with Greek mythology, you can kind of play with it a little bit because the creation stories kind of change. You know, in certain versions of the myth, you know, Gaia comes first after chaos. You know, she she comes from the abyss, from the void, as pretty much every creation story begins. In some stories, she gives birth to the other primordial gods. So she gives birth to Oranos, because I'm not pronouncing it the other way. He, she gives birth to Tartarus. She gives birth to Oceanus. In other versions, they form all at the same time. It just depends on which version of the myth you're reading. I went with the version of they all form at the same time. Gaia comes into being, uh, Tartarus, Oranos, Oceanus, Nyx, Erebus, all these primordial gods. And, and for those that don't know who they are, Gaia is Earth, Oranos is the sky, Tartarus is basically the, the underworld. Oceanus is the ocean. Nyx is the night. Uh, Erebus is the shadows. Uh, there are others, but get the point. Jarrell and Zarel were fire. Without them, in my altered version of Greek mythology, there is no fire. So I had that established in my head. And I had Andreas fully formed my head. He's Greek. He's blonde-haired. He's uh, about six foot eight, just a little bit shorter than his dad. Um, I needed him to be a soldier. I needed him to have that type of discipline and training. I chose Sparta just because Athens was too easy, and Sparta worked better for me. So, as I originally wrote the story. You come in on chapter one, him killing a, a random vampire or whatever, and then you get a little flashback to him meeting his dad. And I kept that scene. I like the way that I wrote it. I like the fact that, you know, Jarrell finds him late in life when he's technically an adult and has actually seen war. As I went on, the thing with Andres was originally I didn't have him paired with man. He was supposed to be with the female protagonist of the book that he was assigned to protect. He was supposed to end up with 
Cassandra O'Dell. I was halfway through the book when I realized the two of them didn't click. They didn't make sense. They didn't work together. It's okay for them to have that brief moment of attraction because Andres has to be attractive. You, generally speaking, if you've gone through mythology, most times a child of a god is very attractive. So Andres has to be attractive, so it made sense for her to note that he was attractive. But the way their characters were set up, Andres and Cassandra just didn't work. So I actually stopped at that point in the writing of the book and went backwards. Because that's when Kazarian formed in my head. I needed to give Andreas someone to miss. I needed him to have that one great love. And I needed it to be that one great love that he never got over. So I went back and I wrote the prologue and I wrote it in one sitting. I have never edited the, the prologue at all. I wrote it as it came in my head. I didn't go back and change it. I didn't think about going back to change it. I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted a big battle while they were mortal. And I knew Kazarian had to die because he was mortal. He was always mortal in my head. So... The prologue went exactly the way that it reads in the book now. Big battle, Ares and Athena arriving too late to stop the battle between their opposing armies to save Kazarian. Kazarian had to die. I also put something in that whole little situation that I will use later. But I will say, pay if you ever go back and read this book, pay attention to what Ares says to Andreas. It plays a big part much later down the road. So as I said, the big thing for me, though, is that Andreas is not actually based off of anyone I know. There's a caveat to that, though. I think I mentioned in my first podcast, I accidentally named... Andreas after one of my cousins, a cousin on my dad's side. And I didn't think of that as I was naming him. The deal with Andreas was when I was coming up with him and I had him fully formed in my head, the one thing I didn't have was a name. And I knew he was going to, he had to be old. I knew he had to be ancient. He had to have a long life. And I wanted a name that seemed like it would fit in today but could be a name of someone older from an older civilization. I don't know if Andreas has any particular Greek connection. Didn't really think about it. And Kazarian was a name I stumbled across somewhere and have no idea what else went into that name other than it sounded cool. And I wanted his name to sound cool and, you know, be able to be used anciently and not necessarily today in... A common way. I really don't think I've come across very many people named Kazarian. But Andreas was, you know, that name sounded right to me, and I named him. And I didn't think about it for about four or five years after I published this book that I had actually named him after one of my cousins, one of my first cousins. This is uh, my dad's nephew. And 
I hadn't seen this particular cousin in years, so I hadn't really thought about it either. I'd never thought about it until someone else pointed it out to me. You know, when you friend each other on Facebook, it kind of comes up when he's supporting the book. And when I happened to make a change to the cover, it was ironic that not only had I named this character after my cousin, but I also chose a a model for the cover that was a white blonde haired version of my very dark skinned uh, cousin. That's just an interesting note. I didn't really, you know, design Andreas with any particular characteristics that I immediately pick up from my cousin or from anybody else that I know. Andreas just was what he was. And in a sense, I guess you could say Andreas would almost be like what I would picture a biological son of mine being. Not in that I picture myself ever having a child that's six foot eight because I'm five foot nine, five foot ten, somewhere in there. I don't think I could make a child that tall. And if I did, it would kind of be uh, freakish. But as far as his personality, as far as his loyalty and his dedication to the family, I guess that was kind of an ideal that I had. I knew Andreas had to be the most loyal of his father's children. I made him the general of his father's army. And in my mind, that basically means most of Jarrell's work gets pushed to Andreas to handle or to Andreas to dish out to his siblings, his cousins, nieces, nephews, so on and so forth. I knew Andreas had to be the, the strongest. He had to be the one to learn the most, and he would be the one ultimately to teach all the others, which is the history that I kept for him. I needed Andreas to be that kind of strong and almost overpowered figure with very few vulnerabilities. And his one vulnerability is really Kazarian. And as I, you know, went through writing this book, I realized I was doing the soulmate thing. So I knew him and Kazarian were meant to be with each other. Didn't know how exactly I was going to get them together. I thought briefly about making Cassandra the reincarnation of Kazarian. That didn't fit. It didn't work. Um, she's female. And, you know, you start off, you see them, and they're both two males. It just didn't feel right to reincarnate her that way. And then I had another role for her. So, Andreas, his inspiration was simply an ideal. What kind of things would I like to see in a kid? Because Jarrell, in a sense, is a very lofty ideal of myself. As a matter of fact, his name is my middle name. Um, and it's a name I had previously used for character. So I always knew the type of character that Jarrell would be. And I knew Jarrell would pretty much be an all-powerful god type of character. What kind of child, you know, would be considered the oldest? And it's, it's fair to know that Andres is not actually the oldest. Since there are other dragon gods, Jarrell has older children. But as far as the ones that we interact with, the ones that we'll see in the series, you know, on a mainstay level, Andres is the oldest. And everyone kind of looks up to him. And even the other children who may be technically older would look up to him. Um, then there was Kazarian. 
And Kazarian is is interesting because he doesn't play he plays a huge part without being frequently in the story. Kazarian is he just formed in my head as what would this kind of all powerful dragon, you know, dominant male who has been a leader across generations, you know, Andreas is 11,000 years old. He is the general, he's the trainer, he's the one that his siblings would come to for advice. He's the one that knows his father the best. He's the one that knows a lot of his father's dirt. And unbeknownst to people, you know, as they read that book, he's the one that did a lot of his father's dirt that Jarrell didn't necessarily want to do himself. For a multitude of reasons that I get to have fun delving into later. But Andreas would also be able to kind of act in a parental way without necessarily being the parent to all of these other descendants. That was my immediate inspiration for him. As far as his personality goes, you know, Andreas is, is generally pretty direct. He has a little bit of a sense of humor, but he's kind of straight-laced. Very different from myself. So one of those characters that can't be based off anyone that I know, really, other than sharing a name with my cousin. Now, the fun part, as I designed these characters and as I went back, backtracked, added in Kazarian, was the dilemma of if they're soulmates, how do I get them together? And I knew I had, you know, the big overarching storyline of somebody being after Cassandra and, and Andreas' job was to protect them. And then, you know, as I'm fleshing them out, it's like, okay, well, who could really hide from somebody like Andreas? Who could really hide from his dad? The only answer was another god has to be involved. Then I had to kind of search. What god would be stupid enough to go against an all-powerful primordial god, a virtually unstoppable dragon that's the descendant of this primordial god and a descendant of Zeus? Who would have the gumption, who would have the gall to go against these powers? So I looked a little bit in mythology and, and one name stuck out, Eris, the goddess of discord, strife, whatever. From mythology, she was in fact the reason for the start of the Trojan War. She was jealous of the other goddesses, Hera, Aphrodite, and I believe Athena. And she prompted a the conflict between the three of them when she threw a golden apple in between the three goddesses and said to the fairest of all, and all three of them went for it, there's an argument. Zeus is smart enough to say, well, I'm not getting in the middle of this. So he puts some mortal in the middle of it. And the three goddesses promise him different things. Um, I think Athena promised wisdom. Um, ultimately, Aphrodite won out in this one because she promised him the most beautiful woman in the world. That woman being Helen of Troy, who was married. The boy chosen was actually the Prince of Troy. 
So he technically takes another man's wife just because he gave this apple to Aphrodite because she promised him the most beautiful woman in the world. Therein starting the Trojan War. But all of this started from Eris being jealous of these three goddesses and pitting them against each other. So she's the perfect culprit. And she's technically a child of Nyx and Erebus. She's a child of the primordial god and goddess of night, shadows, and darkness. So she would be ballsy. She would have the balls to actually try to stir things up. And then I added on a little bit more. Well, how much more could she stir things up? Because ultimately she can't defy Zeus and she can't defy Jarrell. She can... or. She can defy them, but she can't stand up against them. Well, what else can she do? So I start the, you know, kind of idea of resurrecting the Titans. Can the Titans beat the Olympians? No. Can they threaten them? Absolutely. So Ares was the perfect choice for the ultimate overarching villain of the first book and somebody that would be a threat to Andreas because a god should threaten a dragon. Not necessarily saying a god will always beat a dragon, but he should definitely threaten him. So I chose Eris as basically the bitch to kickstart the series. I needed that one evil bitch character that was just determined to stir things up. And that is Eris. That was what she's kind of made to do. She's the goddess of discord. She stirs up trouble all the time. So then, after I figured out, okay, I know she's the ultimate villain. I know that Kalos is the villain name. And for the record, quick origin on Kalos. I took that name from someone in an online setting that I really could not stand. I thought he was the most annoying dipshit I'd ever come across. I thought his writing skills sucked. And... There's that little saying that, you know, don't piss off an author because you might end up in their next book. Well, he ended up in my book. So, and I knew, I knew I was going to kill him off in the end. I just know how to get there. And I needed him to be dangerous enough. So I had to add some backstory. I had to give Andreas a reason to hate this this vampire other than the fact that he's a quote-unquote rogue vampire, which is what he was. You know, Jarrell creates all these supernatural creatures and this one is defying him but to give him a little bit more what would make Jarrell outright hate this person and make him have to hide other than not doing what Jarrell said answer he killed the youngest of Jarrell's children Julian Julian is the favorite I had to establish that early which means he's even a favorite to Andreas which means everyone took his death hard so Andreas would leap at a chance to finally find the person that's responsible ultimately for killing his brother. And what else could be done to drive that point home? And that's where we get a little later in the book where Eris actually steals the soul of, of Kazarian from the Elysian Fields, where he has been for 11,000 years, never choosing to be reincarnated. With Eris stealing it, and therefore it seeming like Kalos has stolen Kazarian's soul, of course, we now have additional hatred. Set up a nice little, little bit of conflict here. But then, 
also comes the barrier of, well, seriously, how is, is Cal's really supposed to compare to Andreas? He doesn't. Needs Eris for that. But he had to be crafty enough to be a threat to him intellectually, if not outright physically. So we have the mind games. And now once reaching that point in the story, it's like, okay, so now Kazarian's in the mortal world and Andreas has to rescue him, but he hasn't seen him in 11,000 years. Even though Andreas is a dragon, he can't just waltz down into the underworld whenever he wants. He's not a god. Doesn't have that freedom. He can go down there if Hades were to, you know, ask him to come do something specific, but it's not often that Hades would ask you to come down into the underworld just to do something for him. So I needed them to stay apart so that their reunion would actually mean something and also kind of gives me a way to weaken Andreas just a little bit. Since Kazarian and his reappearance would distract him. The fun part was, you know, bringing them back together. But the hard part was figuring out how they were going to stay together. It's like, okay, I've got my bad guy and my bigger bad guy. I've got a couple of different threads coming together for how, you know, Andreas interacts with these bad guys and how he's going to get reunited, at least temporarily, with Kazarian. But then comes a question. How do I keep them together? Do I keep them together? Will I, you know, let Kazarian just give Andreas some kind of blessing to move on? That was the question. The answer, well, I don't think I'm spoiling too much to say, ultimately, Kalos dies, Eris dies, Kazarian gets to replace her. So I give him godhood. He's the new god of Discord. Not exactly in line with his personality, but it's a way to reunite him with Andreas, who's basically immortal. Now, once I got all of this settled, then came, you know, wondering, what else can I do with these two characters? Um, even though the first book gave them their happily ever after, because Arian's a god, Andreas is a dragon, the strongest of the dragons, and there's not really anyone short of his dad or grandfather that can kill him, as far as we know. Um, maybe some of the other gods, but that's debatable. The question was, you know, what, what do I do with him next? Well, to me, Andreas had to always be kind of a figure within the series. He has to feature prominently. Now, at the end of the first book, he's technically retired from being the general. You know, he's allowed to step down, have a life, build a family, which does kind of ignore the history that Andreas would have had up to that point, but I did it that way for a reason. The goal in the next books was, though, I still wanted Andreas to guide, you know, the younger siblings and, you know, nieces, nephews, so on and so forth. I introduced Brandon and demon in that first book 
Demon's real name is Brent, by the way. Most people forget that, but he calls himself Demon because that's the way he acts. But I introduced them, and I knew that they would have a big part in the series, but I also made sure that they had a connection to Andreas. They looked up to him. He's their uncle. And taught them, you know, most of what they know about their powers. He can keep them in line even when they're at their most unruly. He has the ability to stop them in their tracks. He also has the ability to talk some sense in them and act as a guiding force and kind of step in in a parental role after, you know, their dad's already dead because they're the children of Julian. And their mom dies at the beginning of the book. She, um... passes away from cancer, I believe. So it was Andreas's job to see them into adulthood. But even beyond that, you know, he's who they get to go and talk to when they need advice. And there's some scenes from future books that didn't always make the cut, but there are actually a lot of instances where they come to rely on Andreas for that strength, that power, and for the advice because he's very long-lived, but can speak to them on their level. So, you know, in the second book, Andreas is only there a little bit in the beginning, a little bit halfway through it. Wasn't his story. Third book, I don't think I had him there at all in the third or fourth book. He comes back in the fifth and the sixth book. And he's always that teacher type of person. It was, that was what I need him to be. And then... I know that after Blood Monarch, which is the last book in the series that I did, I knew that the next book would be another story for Andreas and Kazarian. And so I'm going to give a little bit of information here without spoiling too much, but Andreas has lived a very long life, and I didn't cover all of his long life in the first book. But I felt like trying to imply that he had been like celibate for 11,000 years was unrealistic and implying that he could never ever have a relationship outside of Kazarian was also unrealistic. He's lived too long. And I mean, his father is pretty overactive. You know, he has a lot of siblings by different mothers, some by, you know, other goddesses, some by mortals by other creatures, you know, there's probably some more kids that Jarrell has that I just haven't had pop in my head yet. Andreas has a past. And I don't think it's giving away too much to say. I wanted to explain where some of the other pantheons went. How they vanish, how they eventually are somewhat erased from history. I explained that with the Norse gods because their myths always bothered me. And I had to give them a realistic ending in my head and in this universe. But if I killed off one set of gods, shouldn't I kill off some of the other ones or at least explain where they went if they don't die? The next book is intended to kind of explain where the other pantheons went and also to show just how powerful Andreas really is with him being the strongest. While the first book definitely established he was powerful, I wanted to establish just how powerful he is in comparison to 
his father. How has he lived so long? It's like, yeah, he's the oldest, but does that, and yes, I've said that he's the strongest, but how strong is he really? So the next book is to basically fill in some of Andres' history, a lot of his history, major events, things that Kazarian doesn't know, things that Kazarian should know, things that maybe Kazarian's not going to be happy that he doesn't know, but definitely things that he didn't get to see, you know, while he was in the Elysian fields all that time. He doesn't get to peek in on every aspect of Andreas' life. So there have to be secrets. Has to be stuff that Andreas doesn't necessarily want people to know, that maybe Jarrell doesn't want people to know, but that have to come out. And then there's that key thing that I said to watch out for in the first book, the words that Ares at one point says to Andres. Their interaction becomes very important um, in, in this particular book. So that's a little bit on my inspiration for these two characters. Now, since they weren't inspired by one person in particular, these are just the characters that popped into my head, the appearances that popped in my head, and you know the, the traits that I chose to give them. And like I said, Andres is kind of an ideal. That's how they start. However, some of my other characters have more interesting backstories. So I think we'll get into those at another time. For now, however, I do have some questions that were submitted to be answered. So let's get to those. Okay, so I got three pretty interesting questions that were submitted for me to answer on here. So the first question, and I guess this one probably is like a follow-up to the Single Life um, podcast that I did. But the question is, what is your ideal mate, male and or female? bisexual so obviously that could go either way and this is a hard question to answer I don't know that I have a, a ideal necessarily in my head I don't have anything as far as appearance goes and I don't really care whether they're male or female you know whoever can take that spot in my life can take that spot in my life and more power to them because there's a lot to put up with but if I had to give some things that I would want in this ideal mate, we have to have some similar goals and desires, meaning I'm a parent, you know, I'm a foster parent, but ultimately I'm a parent. And whoever I'm with has to understand and preferably wants the same thing. You know, they need to want to be a parent or no, they definitely need to want to be a parent because my kids aren't going anywhere, even if, you know, my current foster child moves on, moves back home or whatever, if I choose to continue doing this, whoever I'm with has to understand that's going to continue. That, that's a thing that I enjoy and I don't really want to stop. Um, my ideal mate also needs to understand a couple other things about me, like the fact that I am a writer, as detailed in all these podcasts that I keep talking about my writing one way or another. And that, you know, that can be a time-consuming part of my life. Yes, I can make time for the right person always, 
but they also have to understand that I need that time to write. I would need someone that also, you know, just understands, I guess, my moodiness. You know, the fact that sometimes I need to, to be by myself to write. And I don't actually even need to be by myself to write. I just need to have the time to write in peace. But I also do have times where I just need to be by myself. Or, you know, sometimes it's just a mood swing. You know, I might be, you know, standoffish one moment and then I might want to be up under you the next. Um, addition to that, I guess they would be someone that, you know, has some similar interests to me, you know, maybe like reading the same type of things. I'm not going to say they have to be a writer, but, you know, it'd be nice if we have, you know, books in common, if we like similar shows, we have similar hobbies, differences, sure, because we don't need to be the same person. But it would be nice to have some things in common, especially given that the last relationship that I had and was in for five and a half years, we really had nothing in common other than our taste in men. Besides that, there, there wasn't much there. We, we could hold conversations, but they weren't always particularly deep. I think whoever I end up with ideally would need to be able to have deep conversations randomly, not just, you know, I don't want to schedule my conversations, but, you know, sometimes I like to have deeper conversations. If we're laying in bed at night and can't sleep yet or whatever, I think whoever I end up with needs to... Um, be understanding of the fact that I am bisexual. A problem that I encounter with being bisexual is when I want to date a woman, they often just have trouble getting past the fact that I've had men. And when I date a man, they tell me that I'm only saying I'm bisexual as a phase, but I'm really gay. And even with the woman, they might say, well, the gay thing was a phase and you're really straight or whatever. And it's not a phase. You, you can legitimately like both without having to have one of each at the same time. You know, bisexual does not mean whore. Does not mean polyamorous. Uh, doesn't mean that I can't be monogamous. I am definitely a monogamous person. One person at a time is more than enough. So ultimately, my ideal partner is just somebody that has an understanding of who I am, has an interest in who I am, that I don't have to chase after in the sense of wondering, are they doing something they aren't supposed to do? I don't want to feel the urge to go through phones. I don't want to feel the urge to go checking through emails. I don't want to feel the urge to you know, check up on them unnecessarily. I don't want to feel the urge to go hunt them down when something doesn't feel right or when they don't answer the phone or whatever. I want to know that my ideal partner, you know, is someone I can trust, someone that I don't have to give in to my insecurities. I'm not saying it's their job to get rid of my insecurities either, but it would be nice not to have to feel the need to give in to those insecurities and prove myself right or prove myself wrong. I'm a little too old to continue going back and forth in those type of games. I just want, my ideal partner would not 
be any of my previous partners, basically. That's the best I can really say. Okay, so second question is, who's your favorite couple in your books and why? This question is a dirty, dirty question, and it is unfair because it's like asking me to choose my favorite kid. That being said, it's different than asking me to choose my favorite kid because unlike my kids, I actually have a favorite. My favorite couple in all of my books is Talis and Dion from the Coven series. Now, I know this whole show was talking about Andreas and Kazarian, and you may be wondering, how are your first couple not your favorite? Well, Andreas and Kazarian were easy. And Talis and Dion are not. Talis, in a sense, is me. Dion is an ideal I have of someone that I would have liked to end up with. But he's also a lot of things that I would see myself being interested in. So Dion is, is an alpha male in a sense of wanting to, I mean, he's, he's an alpha male. And, and he likes to kind of try to take charge of things, but he's not always capable of taking charge of things because Talis is also somewhat of an alpha male and is used to actually always taking charge of things. The appeal for me with them is Talis is, is, is mentally so strong and Dion is a support to him, but both have insecurities. You know, they didn't have an easy, you know, coming together. They had to work for it. Dion had to come out of the closet except that he really liked men. Specifically, he liked this man. He loved this man. This was who he wanted. This is who he wanted to be with. Then, with that, you know, Talus is a witch. And yes, I use the term witch for my male witches. I don't use the term warlock. I don't like that term. I, I was told that term means liar, and I just never wanted to use it. My male witches are witches, too. And... Talus has responsibilities. Talus, you know, has to, he's, he's a protector. He hunts demons. He hunts, you know, the, the forces of darkness or whatever, however you want to phrase that. Dion was originally thought to be completely human. How can he be the spouse to this, this powerful witch? Not all powerful, because Talus is fallible. And that's the other thing that makes them interesting to me. Talus is not like Andreas. He is not this all-powerful, virtually unstoppable, have-to-be-a-god-to-kick-his-ass type of character. He can be beaten. He needs help. You know, he comes up against enemies where he can't beat them one-on-one. -on -one. He has to have help. He has to have his sister. He has to have his brother-in-law. And then eventually he has to have Dion. And then they're interesting because they have the right amount of conflict because they are different people. You know, Talus being so used to being the dominant person, not easily being able to submit to Dion. Dion being like, hey, you know, I'm not 
fully human. You know, I'm half demon because that's what he is. And I can help you if you let me. And especially in the second book is just there's struggle, there's arguments. But even in those tough times, I enjoy getting them together, piecing them together, you know, letting them see how they fit together. They were the couple that just clicked, but weren't an easy click. They like they were a human couple to me because, I mean, they're not immortal. They can die. Both of them can die. And I think that kind of just helps for me to make them a little bit more interesting. And like I said, Dion is a bit of an ideal in, you know, what I would like to see in a partner, which can be a case can be made for a lot of my characters in that one. But Dion is somebody that I could specifically see manifesting in a real life thing, minus the whole being half demon thing. But personality wise, I could see that those qualities that he has, even that little bit of insecurity, like that endears him to me. And after I wrote the second book, especially, and what I put them through that I will not spoil here, it kind of solidifies them as my favorite because even when they argue, even when they are super pissed at each other, they ultimately come back and look out for each other and will calm down. Okay, last question here. So this question is, what's a characteristic about someone that makes them seem instantly untrustworthy to you? It's going to be a fun one based on who asked this question and what I know they actually meant. So we're, we're going to go with kind of, you know, small things that make them quote unquote untrustworthy. I find you untrustworthy if you have to have ranch to go on your pizza. I don't know what the hell's up with that. I think it's weird. I don't know why you have to have salad dressing on your pizza. And yes, I just took a shot at my own eight-year-old and I don't care because it's fucking weird. Um... (laughs) Other things that kind of along those lines that make you untrustworthy to me or make me look at you a little sideways. Um, I'm not sure. Let's see. Your taste in video games. Um, also, your taste in music. First off, if you like country music, I think you're weird. So, personal preference. Just a little bit untrustworthy to me. What's the like? Um, also, a lot of the newer age music. If, I, if your music taste is questionable to me, I just kind of look at you a little sideways. Video game-wise, if you only play sports games, you bore me. So I'm automatically untrustworthy. You're, you're untrustworthy in my eyes if all you play is sports games. Um on a more realistic level, less joke level. If every time I see you, you're on your phone, but it takes you forever to respond to a phone call or a text message from me, definitely untrustworthy. If we were looking at this from a more relationship-oriented aspect, if you have to hide your phone from me, I don't trust you. Not that I want to feel the need to go through your phone, but... 
you know how some people do that thing where you know every time they get a message on their phone they have to turn all the way away from you put their body in between you and the phone that kind of makes you look a little suspect to me um I mean, other than that, it's like, you know, if I know that you constantly tell little quote-unquote white lies all the time, or you have to exaggerate, or if you're always the victim, you know, every story you tell, you're the one being victimized, makes you a little untrustworthy, makes you look a little suspect. Just my opinion, though. Okay, so that just about wraps up this episode. That was all the questions I had for right now. And I think I gave a pretty good explanation of Kazarian and Andreas. So, next episode. I'm going to keep with, you know, the character analysis for now. And go on and tackle one of my other favorite complicated headache-inducing couples. Next couple I'm going to cover is going to be... Actually, I'm going to cover three characters in this one. Because they're intertwined. So I'm going to cover Brandon, Phil, and, and Adonis. Because their story connects. And there's a lot of backstory behind all three of those characters. So I, I'm going to have fun telling other people how these three characters tortured the ever-loving crap out of me. For, let's see, two, three, four, four books. <laughs> uh, because it took quite a while to get to the conclusion that I needed to get to with these three characters and who ended up with who. That'll be the next episode. And after that, I might, I'm definitely going to do a couple more character analysis from my characters. I definitely want to speak on Victorian Aries. Uh, Vlad and Vax, Demon and Vic uh, a little bit, and also Talos and Dion, who, as I mentioned, are my favorite couple out of all of the couples I've written, and maybe go a little bit more in-depth into how I see those characters and what actually inspired them, who actually inspired Dion, because that's different. Same as, you know, with the couple I'm covering next, or the three characters I'm covering next. There's definitely an inspiration for Brandon, Phil, and Adonis. So next episode, we'll definitely cover who those characters are actually based off of. All three are based off people that I know or knew. And the twisted story on how they (laughs) screwed with everyone that had read my book's heads and my own head and not giving me what I originally asked them for. So that'll be the next episode. As usual, if you have questions, make sure to send those to me on any of my social media or on my website, dracosden.com. Until next show, talk to you later.